0: Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, the weekend is over. We're back to work. I know it sucks. It's Monday. Blah, 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 blah. But this new podcast, I hope that it brings a smile to your face and it makes your Monday suck just a little bit less. If I can do that, then that puts a smile on my face and it makes my Monday better. So today we are going to be talking with this is a Hunter Profile podcast, by the way. And we're going going to be talking with Travis Glassman from Kansas. Now, Travis this past season laid down his biggest buck of his hunting career, hundred 188 inch Kansas giant where, uh, he has two years of history with. So I'm going to let Travis tell this story. It's pretty cool. Not only did he have some encounters with it, but his wife had some encounters with it and he was able to pattern this buck, get on it early and get on it fast. And, uh, He was successful he was successful. I can't even talk today. Anyway, but before we get into this week's podcast, I sat down with Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras about the pros and cons of trail cameras.
1: You know, we talk about this a lot. Chad and I do, you know, sitting around as we're we're trying to come up with new products um, or ways to make our trail cameras better. And the fact that since trail cameras have become Uh, as big as they have over the last 10 to 20 years, they're hugely important. They allow us so many things that were not possible before trail cameras became available to us. You know, I talk about it a lot from my personal stances, trail cameras have allowed me to evolve as a hunter so much faster than I think I would have without them because I'm able to see what's going on and learn so much about the deer that I'm hunting um, when I'm not in the woods. And and seeing those things have allowed me to to kind of pick and choose the places and the deer that I want to hunt so much more than I'd be able to if I was just sitting on a log hoping for the best like it was in the old days. But I will say, I think they do get people in trouble in the fact that, you know, a lot of times this day and age if we're not seeing that big mature buck showing up on camera day after day we're hesitant to sit in the woods and wait and and I think there are times when that's kind of come back to haunt me is the fact that you know no matter how much intel we're able to get no matter how much uh no matter how much digital scouting we're able to do with these trail cameras um and all the tools that are available to us these days there's nothing that that beats putting time in the woods and learning things that are out there and I think sometimes we rely a little too much on that data When, you know, sometimes you have to shut that switch off and really go in there and figure things out, um, for yourself.
0: If you guys want to find out more information about Exodus trail cameras, make sure you go to their website, exodusoutdoorgear.com and, uh, dig a little deeper. All right. Now that we've paid the bills, let's get into this week's Hunter Profile podcast. All right. On the show with me now is Travis Glassman from Kansas. How's it going today, Travis? I'm doing good, Dan. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, right before we started recording this, we had some tef- uh, technical difficulties, so I didn't even know if this podcast was going to happen. But <laughs> disaster averted. We got uh, we're ready to go, and we're ready to start talking about hunting. Good deal. All right. So you're a you're a deer hunter, obviously. Uh, be- but before we get into a couple cool stories that you're going to share with us. Why don't you tell us where you live in Kansas and what you do for a living?
2: I actually live uh, about 54 miles from the Kansas, Colorado line on I-70, a little town called Colby. It's a town, roughly four to 5,000 people. I'm not sure exactly the exact population right now, but um, it's one of the bigger towns in this area. It's a wide open space. It's a farm community, and uh, it's just a really good place to live in my opinion, I was born and raised in the area and, uh, it's just home. So,
0: yeah, I hear that. All right. So outside of, outside of whitetails, uh, do you have muleys out there?
2: We do. We, we have mule deer. Um, it's, it's a really good mix out here, actually. Um, it's probably about 50, 50, really. Um, it's, when I draw or when I get a bow tag uh, over the counter here in Kansas as a resident, you can just get one over the counter um, you can hunt either muleys or whitetails as a resident. Okay. And, you know, it it just seems like, you know, every year when I'm out and about, you know, depending on what I see that interests me, it just kind of, you know, I, I can take my pick. So it's really cool in that regard. So, right. But yeah. And then we also have pronghorn out here as well. It's kind of tough to, to draw a tag with a rifle, even as a resident, but you can bow hunt them as a resident pretty much every year. So,
0: yeah. All right. And uh, you sent me a picture of your wife and uh, she shot a turkey this year already. So you got turkeys out there too.
2: Yeah, we do. Um, it's actually a, a funny area. We actually have um, south of I-70. It's, it's pretty wide open spaces, not a lot of trees. And so it's a limited draw area and it's it's just clear out here on the western part. And so I think they give like 500 tags to residents a year and we always, my wife and I always put in for the draw and usually draw that area. And then we can also get a second turkey tag for north of I-70, which gets us into some other, you know, <clears throat> bottom ground timber type stuff that allows more birds to be taken. so.
0: Yeah. And um, you got a mix it. of, you got a mix of what Merriam's and, or Rio, is it Rios out there? You got
2: yeah. A, we have a lot of Rios for sure. And then there, there are some, actually some Easterns too. Uh, so it's, it's tough to see, you know, tough to tell what you're going to run into, but yeah, predominantly I would say Rios is, is the most populated in this area.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right. And it, I mean, you sent me some pictures and the reason we're doing this, uh, this podcast is because there's big bucks out there too. Um, and we are going to, we're going to start talking about, uh, this, the story of this buck that you shot. What, what was it? What year did you shoot this big buck?
2: Uh, that was actually last September. So it was like September 23rd
0: of 2015. Okay. And you shot him with a bow, right? Yes, okay, so before we start talking about the this actual buck and this deer, why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean you've already mentioned it's kind of like a wide open spaces farming community uh, out in western Kansas, but um let's talk about the the farm that you hunt uh, some specifics of the terrain and uh kind of what we're what we're dealing with so we can imagine where you're hunting.
2: Sure. So out here, like I said, it's, it's mostly agriculture and then, you know, filter in a little bit of pastures for grazing for cattle. Um, there's very little timber. Um, when you do find, find some timber, it usually is a really good area to locate deer. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should always set up in those areas, you know, you know, you use the the timber and the low areas for pinch points. Of course, like like anyone does for whitetails, but it's it's hard to get a really big mature buck to use those areas really hardcore until peak rut. And so, what what they like to do, just because you know how big bucks are, they usually like to get away from the bigger concentrations of deer they'll kind of go out in the middle of a crp field or the middle of a rugged pasture and just kind of be loners out here and then you know a lot of times during the night they'll you know they'll join the rest of the herd and so you can locate them you know using trail cameras and stuff like that in the the funnel areas and you know if you can find water as well it's a, a really good spot for cameras as well so Okay. Uh, Yeah, it's it's difficult to pinpoint one, and so you know a lot of the tactics that I use out here is just get on a high point and you know watch for both you know mule deer and whitetail, and and a lot of times you'll find really nice whitetails bed down by themselves in the middle of CRP or pastures. So
0: okay, so when when you're you know doing your scouting uh, in the summer or you know you're running your trail cameras, what what specific, I mean, where do these deer bed? I know you said there's not a lot of, um, you know, not a lot of timber out there. So where, where are they bedding at? During the
2: summertime, they really use standing crops, uh, just like everywhere in the country, but like standing corn, uh, we have a lot of dryland corn and then we also have a lot of uh, oh, just like cane that they'll swath and bale for cattle feed as well. And they'll, they'll use some of those fields as well. And that's actually where, um, that big buck that I shot this last September that I named big Louie, he, uh, he was bedding in a cane field next to kind of a cedar shelter belt and he would use that area a lot.
0: Okay. So what, what was, uh, what are some of these deers, you know, this, this deer's pattern, um, and what are, the qual I mean the quantity I mean is there a, a healthy population I don't know if you've hunted anywhere else in any other state what's the you know when you sit in a tree stand or a blind out where you hunt how many deer do you expect to see in a set
2: well we we have a pretty good population out here I mean <clears throat> I would I would say it's probably average to maybe just a little below average compared to you know eastern Kansas of course but the overall herd is, is really balanced out here. It's, it's good buck quality. And, and, you know, I would say like, to answer your question on numbers, just to sit in a, you know, in one of my decent spots, I would say, I'd probably see, I don't know, anywhere from five to 20 does a night. And then, you know, pretty good handful of bucks as well. I mean, it just all depends on area. It's just so concentrated in on, from good spot to good spot it's kind of few and far between just because everything's so flat out here but when you do get into
0: a good pocket you know you're you can expect to see a pretty good herd number so and then what's the you know obviously you shot an absolute giant but what's the typical uh the typical buck around there i mean is there a is there a good age structure or is is it on the low end
2: I would say the age structure is really good. Um, you know, you know the Kansas season. I mean, the the rifle season gets pushed clear, you know, to the first part of December, and so the rut is mostly over, and so it it allows some of the bucks, you know, statewide to you know get through the rut without any pressure, and and then a lot of times the you know the mature bucks will kind of split back off after the breeding's done and they'll be a lot more difficult to kill during rifle season. And so that helps a lot. So our age structure is really good. I would say overall compared to some other States, I haven't hunted a lot of whitetail in other States. Um, but just, you know, from listening to you guys and, and just some of the other people's experiences, but, um, you know, I would say if, if you, if you're looking at score wise, I would say that Western Kansas average wise on the whitetail is probably just a little bit less average score wise than some of the bigger bucks that are taking in the eastern part of the state. I'm guessing that's probably just due to, you know, quality of soil and and things like that. But, um, you know, it's comparable, obviously, to eastern Colorado. Um, We're just pretty desolate out here. We don't get as much rain. And so I'm sure that does take some part in antler growth as well. So. Yeah. Um but I would say, you know, I look every year if I can shoot 150 inch deer that is I won't pass that up, you know, and right. I would say that for sure, you know, a 135 isn't out of the question every year.
0: Okay. So cuz my uncle, he lives I I whenever I tell the story I get extremely jealous of him. Yeah. But he moved from Iowa to southeastern Kansas. Um Mm -hmm. and for, he took a job and he goes up there. And I think in his first five years, he shoots three, uh, three Boone and Crockett's. And then, Mm -hmm. uh, hit was two years ago. He shot a 211 incher with a rifle. So that, but he tells me uh, you'll sit all day long and you'll, you'll either see one, two deer or no deer, but, The quality one, when the big boys do step up is phenomenal. So, um, you know, I would definitely, I don't know about you, but I would definitely sit all day long for as long as it takes to shoot a Boone and Crockett. If that was the only deer I saw all year round.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) And I would, you know, I would go along with that as well. I mean, you know, it's, it's difficult to locate that Boone and Crockett, but once you do, they're they're not that difficult to hunt or get an opportunity at, especially with a rifle. Um, Just because everything is so visible out here. I mean, that quality of deer isn't just around every corner and and it's, you know, difficult to find, like I said, but when you do, um, if you stay on them and if you, if you hunt smart, then you have a really good opportunity.
0: Right. So what is your strategy going into a season. I mean, you're running trail cameras during the summer, correct? Yes, that's correct. All right. So, why don't you tell me a little bit about your strategy, um how you do you put together a hit list and if so, how you set up and and, and start your plan of attack on these deer?
2: Well, it's it's very seasonal. Um, and what I do is start, you know, somewhere around the end of July when they're done Growing antlers or i may start you know the first part of july or the middle just depending on when i have time to get out and get the camera set up but um we we are allowed to put mineral down and i i do that and what i what i do normally in the summertime is i find you know i always have from experience my go-to spots where i think the deer will be either traveling through or i'll find you know those standing feed corn whatever type fields milo that i think they're betting in And then I'll look at aerial maps and, and, or I might just know the the area, but I'll look at the the areas where I think they're going to be exiting those fields. And there's, it's usually due obviously to where they're headed for water or if they have, you know, a green source that they want to feed on. And I'll, you know, either get pictures of them stepping out of the feed or uh, on a trail to water. And I'll, I'll usually, you know, throw mineral out just for that, little extra chance to get you know an inventory um that's my tactic during the summer is just to to get as many cameras as i can out in in what quality areas that i find throughout the summer and then try to get good pictures over mineral so i'll develop my you know hit list that way and then it's difficult you know you always get your hopes up during the summertime obviously um on the hit list but after that you know, all bets are off, it seems, when, when they lose their velvet, everything, you know, sometimes it works out and they don't really change their pattern a whole lot. And sometimes they just totally change. And you know, this, this past year was a good example. I just got, you know, really lucky he stayed on the same pattern he had been on, even in velvet. So, um, I'll try to get to an observation area where I think he might be, you know, using, using the trail camera intel that I have i'll I'll pretty much put together what I think his pattern is, and then I'll just go out you know in an evening or you know I'll wait for the perfect moon phase or cool front or whatever to go out you know before a you know a week or two before season starts, and just try to get a good idea of what he's doing for sure to you know solidify my plan and uh then try to make sure the wind's right and just get on an ambush position when he steps out of the feed basically and so a lot of times it's you know sitting on a a turkey chair next to a standing field you know and, and there's not a whole lot of timber like i said so it's just basically ground hunting and uh it, it just worked out this past year but yeah that's that's my ideal situation is to find something exiting a feed field headed to water or feed or something like that and and to, to just wait wait him out and,
0: and see if he makes a mistake. So so uh, after go ahead. so is there um do you notice annual patterns out there like when like you mentioned when the velvet comes off, you said it's kind of an all bets are off. Is that due to um maybe the bucks breaking off of their bachelor groups or is do um the crops start to come out in that area or is there is there some kind of change that you notice that makes them change their pattern
2: i think for the most part they stick to the pattern or stick to their core area until the crops get cut and that's usually sometime around mid-october as everything starts drying down you know everything gets swathed for feed or else you know the dryland corn gets picked but that will drive the the deer to the more wide open crp fields and pastures for bedding and then they'll their work their ways back down to creek bottoms for water and then you know if there's you know winter wheat coming up or anything like that or uh if you get lucky and find an alfalfa bottom somewhere or something like that and they'll utilize those during the night for feeding but i would say that the crops are 90 percent of what makes them change their pattern um the, the crops coming out um but other than that i i think they they do pretty good at sticking to their core area I I think that just depending on the weather if it's super hot you know of course we've all heard the the October lull situation and whether that becomes uh, because of heat uh, whatever it might be I do think it might get a little bit difficult to find them but it just seems like I've had really good luck uh, at the tail end of September because our season starts I'm usually around mid September. And what happens is that's actually muzzleloader season. And I can, you can archery hunt at the same time as that. You just have to wear orange until the muzzleloader season's over. And that's usually around the first part of October. So uh, I I was wearing orange this last year uh, that I hunted
0: big Louie. So that was one of those deals you gotta, you gotta do. (laughs) Yep. For sure. So let's see here. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk to you about real quick was hunting pressure. Um, -hmm. Western Kansas, obviously, and, and you get down into the Southwestern Nebraska, not a lot of people. I mean, you're, but you said you live in, you know, a fairly decent sized city. Um, is there a lot of bow hunting, early season bow hunting pressure on some, on these areas that you hunt, or is it kind of, you have your pick of whatever you want out there?
2: You know, I've had really good luck early, especially, you know september october as the rut comes you find um people from out of state come a lot and and you know there are there are guys that i've ran into that you know hunt a neighboring property or something like that um most of the time you know the the areas that i hunt on don't really get much pressure just because i've had relationships with the landowners for so long that they've kind of allowed me to kind of have free reign to the place without any other people um i'm really lucky in that regard but there are some areas that i do hunt that other people have permission and it really seems to pick up like i said starting november 1st and you know all through november and then of course rifle season starts usually about the first week of december and so rifle season because (laughs) that's where the the intensity picks up out here because what happens is you have all these open areas and you have trucks driving around section lines all day long and everyone's out there in a vehicle trying to spot a deer and you just see traffic like crazy and so it's really difficult to get a deer that's not been pressured during rifle
0: season Yeah, so yeah. it's you have to find your little honey holes where not many people get especially vehicles yeah for sure so after then after the rifle season, is it hard to uh, do late season hunts? Cause they're so spooked or is it, is it a, still a possibility to pattern something late season?
2: It's still a good possibility. Actually, I've had some of them, I've seen some of my bigger deer actually late and that, you know, lines up with a lot of uh, information that I've heard also from other states, you know, just listening to you guys and other podcasts, but it's really good when the weather gets really bitter out here, um, you know, toward usually mid mid December rifle season's over. It starts to get really cold and I can bow hunt till the end of the year. And so the last two weeks of December usually is really good. If we get really cold weather, if you can stay in the elements, you can see some really good deer. Uh, it's are they're, they're a little bit on edge just because of all the pressure, but you know, mother nature takes its course and they just have to get up and and get some feed. And they just really seem to, you know, for whatever reason, get on their feet, you know, before, you know, during daylight hours. So that does help for visibility, seeing good bucks. And I've had some pretty good luck late season when I've, you know, kept my tag that long.
0: Gotcha. Now let's get into, let's get into this buck you call big Louie. It's kind of funny because I actually, have a buck that i call i called big lou too i named him after my uh my father-in-law everybody calls him big lou he's like yeah five five just this real sh- short uh solid off guy but uh <laughs> but big lou all right so y- did you get any trail camera pictures of him before the season started and yeah I had- so go ahead and, and tell me what was he doing that you know you know, you're as a bow hunter here. We it's early season. We're trying to get that that bed to pattern type uh, movement. And then, what were you looking for, and maybe your plan of attack on on this buck once you did get trail camera pictures of him? Okay,
2: if you don't mind, I might back up till the the prior year. Oh yeah, um,
0: for sure, for sure.
2: Okay, so in 2014 is when I actually started noticing him, and I know he's you know he was there. I just never. You know how bucks, when they're young, they don't quite hit the radar until they, you know, have that wow factor. But uh, I estimated him as a four-year-old in 2014. Um, He he was running with another buck, and they were both mainframe ten-pointers. They had a couple different kickers on their G2s. One had one. Big Louie had one on his left side, and, and the other deer that he was with, he was actually a year younger, but he had one on his right side. And they're running together through the summertime. And, uh, it was it was actually on a neighboring piece of property from where I actually shot Big Louie uh, it was to the south of me and I actually had permission on this farm too and it, it has a, just a small little kind of horseshoe area of creek bottom with some it actually was standing corn in 2014 which is why they were you know hanging around that area um, I actually had the tree stand down on a little horseshoe of Tim uh, Creek bottom and it neighbored just a nice little uh, spot where the corn kind of came down the hill and kind of met up beside it. Anyway, I had a trail camera there, and they they would step out and come right under my stand into a, a little creek crossing, uh, pretty much every night. And uh, Big Louie was on our radar in our hit list in 2014. He was actually at the top, and he was probably roughly around 160 165 in my estimation. He didn't have really any extras or anything. He just was a mainframe perfect 10 with one kicker and uh just a beautiful buck. And we actually went through the whole season. We never got a close encounter with him until probably, I would say, mid November. And I had already tagged out, and my, I was in, uh we have a double set in the same exact spot where I got trail photos of him all summer. And I was filming my wife, and we just do, you know, just for our own. You know, pleasure. We don't produce anything or anything like that, but I was uh, in a stand above her and I actually spotted him right at last light coming across uh, a small little uh, wheat stubble field and he came right through the creek crossing at 15 yards from us and I called my wife off from the shot <laughs> which she was absolutely irritated with me about but he had broken his right side clear off and okay. he had about six inches of main beam with a brow tie, and so he had a perfect left side you know nothing broke but then it just snapped at the main beam after the brow tie between the the g1 and the g2 and uh so you know it was kind of bittersweet because we had finally you know figured him out finally crossed paths with him and we you know i called her off and i told her that we got to just let him go you know and so anyway, we let him go, and uh, never did encounter him again that year.
0: Um, what was he score wise? Found... What's that? What was he score wise
2: this year? Uh, no, him. no,
0: last the the previous year.
2: Yeah, he was. I like I said, I estimated him during the summertime running trail cameras. I I figured it as many ways as I could and I came up with around one sixty
0: 160 to one sixty five. Okay. okay.
2: And I might have been just a little bit low because I underestimated him uh in twenty fifteen when I actually shot him. I just it's a it's one of those deer that he actually grows when you get him down and, yeah. and just from the trail photos, you know, you just it doesn't you can't quite get all the inches. But anyway, um like I said right, so 165. fifty five I'll put him at in twenty fourteen. And uh everything you know, season ended i ended up filling my tag on a different buck and then um i never did find his sheds i looked all over i never could find his sheds in uh 20 in the spring of 2015 but then you know we pop right back up up on trail cameras as soon as i started running them uh in 2015 um he was across the road to my to the northwest and it's kind of funny that little area that i hunt is um there's actually a few different houses there, but they're, they're really protected with heavy, heavy shelter belts. And so it kind of separates the ag land from the little farms and stuff. So they, they don't, the the deer get used to hearing, you know, cars and they get used to hearing, you know, kids playing in the background and stuff like that. And so, you know, it was kind of funny that the first night that I hunted big Louie, I had gotten trail photos of him all summer long. Uh, coming out of this standing feed field. And he would come through a little piece of uh, cedar shelter belt that was kind of all by itself. It, it wasn't next to a house. It was it's just kind of a little finger of cedar trees. And he would cross a county road and he would go into th- the neighbors right behind an, an old, there's an old gentleman that lives in a brick home that's kind of tucked back into this timber. And he's an old bachelor and he runs a few cows and he doesn't really get out a whole lot and so he doesn't raise any commotion he just kind of is really quiet about what he does so anyway he, this guy i don't know what the reasoning is for it might be because he has cows sometimes up in his yard or whatever but he lets uh his hose it like a garden hose run in his his shelter belt behind his house and i'm sure obviously it benefits the trees but
0: he also has has it kind of fenced in for cows too What's and a sh- what is a shelter belt? That you mean well, where they grow I, trees to block the wind from hitting the yeah, house. Yeah, okay, I, I got gotcha.
2: you. Yeah, if you're from out here where nothing blocks the wind, you know, you'll you'll everyone knows what a shelter belt is. It's okay. basically just a, you know, a few different rows of cedar trees or whatever trees you choose to yep. to block the wind from cuz we have nothing to block it out here. But anyway. So, this guy just kind of flood irrigates in these trees and it it draws the deer obviously. And so this big Louie buck, he was crossing County road, jumping across and, and he would go get a drink, you know, after dark usually, but on the North side of the road was the property that could hunt. And it kind of, the, this, these cedar trees kind of funneled, you know, pinched everything down into where he could cross the road and, and be, you know, the, the trees went right up to the County road. And so he, he could be very, very hidden, you know, before he jumped across to get a drink. And so that is where I had my trail camera set up and he would come through at least a couple, probably three times a week to get a drink. And so I knew he was staying in an area uh, to the north of there, which was all like standing cane field. And so what I did was, I actually put a ladder stand in the biggest cedar tree that I could find in this this little patch of cedars and right next to those cedars to the north was that big field of, of uh, cattle feed and uh, because like I said it's kind of dry out here most of the time there were areas in the field that were kind of burnt down where you could you know you could kind of see if you were up in a tree stand you could see over top of it it wasn't just like a huge lush field you had some terrace tops that seemed to be dried out where the, the moisture wasn't get to it and so he would actually use some of these terrace channels to as a travel corridor just because it was a lot thinner in the field and the first night that i went out to hunt him is actually i can't remember his open not opening night of season or if it was the next night or two i think i waited for the best cool weather in, in that first week you know i hopped up in the stand and and uh i just i had my bow with me but i was more you know there just to see if i could figure out what what part of this field he was laying in cuz i mean it's a it's a big field it's probably like at least 80 acres of of this cane and uh i climbed up and it was you know the farmer had come home there's a, there's a a farmer that lives just right there east probably i don't know 500 yards maybe and it's all protected and all covered up like i said from uh the cedar tree row and so you know you i I seen all the the cars come by after everybody gets off work and you know they they came into the yard and you could hear the kids unloading after school and after work and you could it was just like i'm sitting here thinking there's no way i'm gonna see any deer hear any deer nothing you know and all of a sudden i look up and it was like the last 15 minutes you know awesome time and and i could see just antler tips working across this terrace channel and he's just walking to the west and he ended up going to the west edge of the field and i'm thinking you know he's got to be turning my way at some point because i thought you know he's got to be coming to water well turns out he walked straight west out of the field and right next to this field was a wheat stubble field so it was only you know just basically bare dirt with some some wheat stalks out there and uh he would step out on the edge right at last light and he would basically just start walking to the north and west and he would he was actually walking over to a uh, standing cornfield that was probably a quarter of a mile to the west and so he was waiting till last light of course to step out and expose himself but he would walk across just a wide open field to get to this standing cornfield to feed and so i think he was staying in the cane you know just because it was you know one good bedding but also it was it was low enough in places that he could he felt that he could stand up and actually see if there was danger coming and I think the dry land corn I, I always questioned why he wasn't staying in the corn if he if he wanted to be eating there you know and I think I think what they like to do is be able to see out if they want to you know they want to be able to just you know get down hidden obviously but I, I found that with out here with a lot of deer they'll stay in milo instead of corn because the milo they can stand up and, and see over top of it if something's approaching um that's just my take on it but yeah. um anyway if he he was headed to corn to eat and so that was the first night and I, I thought you know this is you know frustrating that he didn't come my way but it was really good piece of the puzzle so what i did was after he had left i got down and it was just a little shimmer light left so i needed i could kind of see you know if maybe there was a trail coming out of the field maybe he had been using it often well the problem was is there were it, it, at the bottom of each paris channel there was and they're probably i don't know 150 yards apart as you go to the north in this field along the west edge you could see where the deer would step out you know, there were trails at every one of them. So it was like, man, I don't know how I'm going to pick, but what I did was wait. I came back the next night and I got the wind in my favor. I got, you know, downwind of the trail that he stepped out on. And, uh, I just got there. Luckily I had a little bit of wind. So, you know, the, the leaves were rustling in the cane field. So I was quiet as I could. And I took my little camp chair and I, I went out and I kind of sawed a few uh, cane plants down and made, made me a little ground blind. And uh, I was about 25 yards uh, downwind of where I thought he was going to step out, where he had stepped out the prior night. And so I was sitting there and, you know, last 30 minutes of shooting light and I'm thinking it's, you know, it's got to happen anytime. And I'm just, I'm like amped up because I knew that if he stepped out, it was going to be like instant, bow range like the the cane field was so tall that i knew i couldn't see him coming because i was hunkered down in my little blind that i had made so i was just on edge the last 30 minutes i mean i'm sitting there almost shaking just anticipating you know your mind starts playing games with you and it's just crazy the intensity but anyway so i'm i'm looking to my left because that was where the trail was and for whatever reason that something caught my eye and i looked to my right well he had came out on a a different trail that I was telling you about to my North, about 120 yards. And so I instantly got out my video camera cause I knew he was at a boat range and, you know, I didn't want to mess anything up. Didn't want to try to call him or anything like that, especially in September. And so I just let him kind of veer off and it, it's the perfect footage because he steps off, you know, steps up into the horizon. The sun had just set, and it's just his rack. It just looks that much bigger, of course, in the, yes. in the horizon. And he just walked off and, obviously I just had to watch, but you know, it was really cool to have good quality footage of him before I shot him. Yeah. And then, uh, so I went back the next night and it I, he was a no a really,
0: I got a really quick question for you before we okay. go any further. So you're sitting at the end of one of these terraces in this field, right? And basically it's yeah. kind of like a, Hey, I'm, I got to pick one of these terraces, um, where he might be coming out at. Right. Are at this point where you, where you sat down, you know, you, the first, the first night you saw him, you were in a tree stand in a cedar. The next night you went into the cane field and you were in, um, you know, you sat on a a camp chair. Were you high enough to, to where you could see a long range? Or was it one of these things where as soon as, You know, it was going to be kind of like a bam, bam, hey, I saw him. I got to try to get a shot off type scenario. Or could you see a long ways from where you were sitting in that cane field?
2: So basically it was difficult because he was stepping out on the west edge of this standing cane field. I could see a long ways to my west because it was a really short, it, it was a wheat field that had been harvested that summer before, like in August or in July. And so I could see, you know, this the stubble's only six inches tall. So you could see forever going west, but to my East where he was bedded behind me, I had to, you know, use that cover. And I didn't want to get out into that cane field to try to ambush him coming through the cane, just because I, I never knew where he was bedded, Like I, I didn't dare step foot in that cane field because I didn't want to alert him or any other deer around him. Okay. And so my back is to the cane field, which is, you know, anywhere from uh four foot tall to, you know, six, seven foot tall. And, you know, my back in the camp chair against the tall cane. And so I just had to go off of sound to where I would hopefully hear deer, you know, working through the leaves of the cane field and hopefully have a little bit of chance to kind of get everything ready to shoot. I knew that as soon as he stepped out, you know, it was going to be game on. And I would just, I was hoping, you know, I, I made sure that on the edge of this field, I was back a row in, in the, the plant rows to where when he stepped out, he didn't just see a human blob sitting on the edge of the field. You know, I was right. I wanted him to step out, look down the field edge, feel comfortable then then continue on his normal path to where you know he would give me a good quartering away shot cuz he would be walking away from me headed to the to away from me to my west into gotcha. the sunset
0: okay now yeah. did you were you seeing any other deer work in the same area or was it was he isolated was it just him
2: the, he he traveled by himself all the time but there were other deer using the field um there were i had those downwind of me several times and the good i'm I'm super super strict on my scent control and i mean i'm annoying to my wife and you know you know how that goes but anyway i just i do everything possible and i also use you know some cover scent you know you mentioned nose jammer a lot of heavies that works really good i have this other stuff called cover up it's kind of like a sweet fresh earth smell um I sprayed it, you know, all around the leaves around the ground line that I had made. And I, I had those downwind of me, you know, for the two nights in a row or three nights in a row that I hunted there on that edge. And I never did have one get weird or, or nervous or anything. And part of the reason too, is they weren't getting the wind hitting me directly. They, the wind was coming over top of that cane and it was kind of like a canopy to me. I was kind of back in in my little blind and so I, I don't think that the wind was able to you know glance off of me and take my scent directly to their nose I mean of course a whitetail's nose is amazing and so you know there's always that chance but I was getting away with it I was you know doing really good I was setting up to where I was downwind of you know any trail that I thought he was going to be coming out on and so I he never ever got a chance to smell me
0: so all right so uh, that night, uh, the, you chose the, a different, or he chose, tro- chose a different trail to walk down. So you, you missed your opportunity there. What happened next?
2: Well, the next night I went back in and I had actually checked. Okay. So yeah, the, it was basically the third night that I was hunting. Him. The first night was the, the observation span. The second night was out of range. Third night, I did not see him at all. It was a bust. I seen does like normal, but no bucks. And I was kind of frustrated. I didn't know, you know, what had happened. So I actually, you know, went home, decided, you know what, I'm going to try one last night before, you know, I kind of back out and maybe do another observation and see if maybe he changed up on me or something. And I actually went back in the fourth night and I checked my trail cameras. I have two two cameras. The one is right there at that Cedar Crossing for water and he was in that area the following morning and so but then the other camera that i have is actually in the spot where um my wife passed up the opportunity when he had broken you know to the south in the little the little area to the south and east of that area and so i i actually have pictures of him the night that he was a no-show the third night he was a no-show, he showed up on that camera to the southeast. And so that was one thing through the summer that I found. He would randomly take just, I mean, I know that this was his, you know, part of his core area because obviously the summer before he was blowing up my trail cameras, but he would randomly take a jaunt to the south and make a big horseshoe and, and come back and bed right back in that same cane field. It was like a mile loop that he would take during, during the night. And I actually got pictures of him underneath my other tree stand. Like I said, where my wife passed up the year before, probably 15 minutes before shooting light was over the the night before. So if I'd have been sitting in that other stand, I would have had an opportunity that night, that third night. So I knew, you know, like I said, I, on the way in on the fourth night, I checked the cameras, found all this information out. I had pictures of him back at, you know, right across the road from the water in that that cedar patch uh, at first light. And so I knew that he had made a loop to the south, came back that morning, went by my trail camera and went back out into that cane field. So I was really, really pumped up about the fourth night's hunt because I knew that he walked right by my camera and bedded down exactly where I thought he was going to bed. And so, of course, I set up same exact way. Um, I actually went back to um, the original spot where no, I ended up going to the spot where he had uh, came out the second night where he was north of me, 120 yards out of range. I set up on that spot and I was, you know, everything was going good. The windows in my favor.
0: What what directions and, were these winds? I mean, you're hunting four days in a row. Were the winds the same direction all four days, all five most days? Of the
2: time, yeah, most of the time during that, you know, the summer months and then into September, most of the time it's a southerly wind just because, you know, when it's warm, you get mostly south winds unless you get some sort of front that comes through to switch that around. So right. I was hunting south winds. Um, And so I was on the north side of the trail that I thought he was going to come out on on every evening. The good thing is, is when he came out, he would, you know, quickly get to my west. And so, he, you know, there was basically, unless he walked directly downwind of me at a short distance, there was, it's, it's very unlikely that he would have ever gotten my wind unless he just, you know, stepped out. A random spot to my north because of the south wind, but he never did that, and so this fourth night, when I ended up shooting him, he you know the sun was just setting, and I had you know thirty minutes of shooting light left and and the sun had just went down below the horizon, and I think that was kind of his cue. you know they just obviously know they 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 travel when it's lower light, and he he I know that he didn't want to travel looking into a bright sun. And so uh, he would step out on that edge facing the sunset. And, uh, he actually came out, cleared down close to where my trail camera was at. Uh, it was actually probably 200 yards South of me. And he, he he stepped out on the edge and he turned North and he, he started just like trotting and. I, I was kind of, you know, you just kind of blinded by the sun that had just set. You're just kind of trying to refocus your eyes on, you know, looking out into the the areas that, you know, are kind of difficult to see. And I kind of looked to my left and I just kind of seen a buck trotting and I'm like, pull up the binoculars. Sure enough, you can't mistake his rat coming. And he was probably 40 yards out from the edge of where I was sitting on the edge of the field. And he was kind of working straight north so I knew that if he kept on that path it was going to be about a 40 yard broadside and uh so I ended up you know grabbing my rangefinder, which I have just in my right pocket and I pulled it up and I just kept falling and kept clicking and clicking and he was 100 and then he kept getting closer and he actually started quartering away from me a little bit and because of the wide open out here I'm really used to sh- taking a little bit longer shots just because it's you know, when you get an opportunity to big buck out here inside 60, you better take it because it's so difficult to in the flight land to get close, close, bow shots. But anyways, he's, he's out there about 60 yards and he just, it was like everything was meant to be. Uh, he stopped exactly 60. I ranged him one last time to make sure my range was right. Uh, I was tucked back in that ground blind and everything was, you know, really dark around me. So I know that he couldn't see anything. And, I clicked on and pulled back real slow, and he just, he did kind of look my direction, but he wasn't staring straight at me. And uh, the first thing that he heard was the bow going off, and he just kind of looked my direction as the bow went off, and he, it it hit him like a ton of bricks, right? Perfect, right behind the shoulder, but I didn't know exactly where I hit him um, because. I seen the arrow going in the in the right spot, left and right, but I didn't know if the up and down was going to be right. I I couldn't tell. I couldn't see the arrow flight that well because I was just it was he was kind of in a low spot and it was kind of like shadowed by the sunset, and so I, it was it was kind of a difficult situation for me to see. And uh, I didn't shoot a lighted knock or anything, and so it was just difficult. I had to go off of the sound of it hitting him and his reaction, and so when it hit him, it sounded really good. And he took off running like crazy. And so I didn't see him staggering or anything, but I knew that, you know, I had hit him. And so I went ahead and let it get dark and went out with flashlights and couldn't find any blood, couldn't find my arrow, couldn't find any sign of anything. And so I was just extremely nervous about you know, trying to go look for him just randomly. And so I decided to leave and uh, come back the next morning. And I brought my wife and my little four-year-old back out. And uh we've got a Polaris Ranger. So we went out, you know, in the field where I had thought I'd hit him. And still no arrow, no blood. And finally, my wife picked up a speck of blood. And we followed faint blood across this week's double field and we just were I didn't have high confidence I was more I was more uh, following his tracks than blood itself and I was just not the blood trail was not giving me a good feeling at all and so I'm thinking man I, it sounded like I hit him really good and so, so as I'm just almost crawling across this field trying to find the next piece of sign I told Kendra to just go ahead and go on up in the in the general direction where he was traveling and take my boy cause he was tired of walking and stuff. I said, take the Polaris and go up and, um, see if you can't, you know, cross this County road into that, uh, standing cornfield. Well, <laughs> the, the weird part about this whole story is he was going to that standing cornfield and that was the exact direction that he was headed after I hit him. They had actually harvested that field. They were harvesting that field the third night that I was hunting, that deer. And so they it was a freshly picked cornfield and it was just a dry year and so it it the, you know they decided to cut it earlier they chopped it for cattle feed or whatever reason was that they chopped it early it was just beyond me but anyway luckily she was able to go out in that cornfield and and her and my little boy found him. So oh boy. He he was only, you know, he had ran on a sprint probably I would say like three hundred yards, maybe five hundred at the most, and he, had, like I said, caught, crossed the county road, and he was about a hundred yards past the county road, out in a uh, uh, cornfield. So, um, he, I walked up to him, and I'm thinking, you know, why did he not bleed? Well, what had happened was I had lodged; he was quartering away just enough that the, the shot was perfect behind the shoulder on his right side. But on the left side, it had lodged in his off shoulder, and I didn't get an exit. And so what had happened, obviously, was all the blood was inside the chest cavity, and it was high enough up. It was about mid-body, but it just didn't drain out. And yeah. so anything that was on the ground was just spatter, and it was just difficult to follow. So luckily, that field was you know, there were, there were some bare spots enough that we could follow tracks. And that's basically what I did was just follow his big running tracks the whole way.
0: Yeah. I hear that. That's uh, definitely, uh, hard to, uh, hard to track, especially in stubble, first of all, and any type of grass, it's very hard to follow blood. So, you know, you knew where he was, what kind, I mean, is this your, is this the biggest buck you've ever harvested? yeah
2: absolutely um I've shot a lot of really good mature uh representatives for this area and I've got uh, probably ten ranging from one thirty five on up to the one sixty range um, but this is by far the biggest buck that I've had an opportunity to get a hold of for sure I've hunted some that were equally as big out in this area but they're just so few and far between that it's it's difficult to locate something of that magnitude for sure.
0: So um, f- for the listeners here, why don't you? What did he score?
2: Um, I had him actually official scored. Um, his gross Pope and Young score was one eighty-seven and five eighths, I believe. Um, I don't have that sheet in front of me. I'm, I, I should have, but I don't. It's he didn't net out as good as I hope because he's got kickers on both left and right side, but I know that his main frame 10 point gross score was right around the one seventy five mark. I believe it was. So he's got, you know, 12, 13 inches of extras.
0: Yeah. He's a, uh, he's a one, almost a 188, you know, with all the junk I you know, I don't care yeah. one bit about net scores. I don't know if any of right. you, you and, guys and do, that, but yeah, no,
2: we, we, we give it to him if they grow it. And yeah. that's what I always tell everybody. He you know, he's one all but one eighty eight. So yep.
0: yep. All right. So you walk up on him and you know, your your wife and your son found this buck. What kind of what was your emotions and feelings as you you step you walked up to him and you touched him for the first time?
2: Well, you know, you always have that humbling moment. You know, you walk up to him and he you've just Looked at him so many times on trail camera, and you know the magnitude of all the awesome trail photos they have, and just to see him laying there, you know when he, it was like he laid down peacefully. You know, I mean it wasn't, I don't know. It just you walked up there, and it was just such a humbling moment because everything has come to a head, and it's just like what now? You know, and I know that a lot of hunters will relate, and it's just like where do we go from here? You know, it's just like, you, you have to take your hat off and, and just really soak it all in for, for a while. I mean, it's, it's, I can't describe the emotion. It's just something special about the animal and the experience. And, you know, you just have to take it all in and it's just so humbling. And if if you don't appreciate it, then you shouldn't be doing it,
0: I guess. <laughs> no, that's a fact, Jack. Um. All right. So, so, I I was going to ask you, are you excited for this upcoming season? But recently you sent me a trail camera picture and some sheds of a buck that you found. So real quickly, why don't you tell me about what you're excited for, for this upcoming season?
2: Yeah, so there's a buck that was another buck that was running with this big Louis Buck of uh, the prior year in 2014, and we didn't really name him in 2014. He was just a really—I don't—I can't tell if he was three or four. I think he was four in 2014, so I'm pretty sure he's five now, just by looking at the mass and stuff uh, from the sheds that I found. Um, he is a mainframe ten pointer, but he's a little bit weak on the G fours. So, you know, you you basically are are of looking at a mainframe eight with with just a couple little knobs for for d4s um he's I, after i shot big Louie in september i kept running trail cameras and i my wife still you know hunts with me and i try to get her a nice deer every year uh we ended up getting her a mule deer actually uh it was our first mule deer with a bow this year and so that was really awesome but um so i just kept running trail cameras and i got pictures of this new buck and I named him touchdown just because his G twos just go straight up like goalposts and they're just phenomenal. His his left G two is eleven and six eighths and his right G two is eleven and two eighths is on the sheds that I measured. His right side's a little bit smaller score wise than his left. His left side scored seventy five and five eighths and his right is sixty-six and seven eighths. And uh that gives him, I, I estimated his spread at about 19 inches and he's, that put him right around the 161, 162 mark, um, in 2015 after I found his sheds. Uh, my wife and I, like I said, were monitoring the trail photos all, all year of him in 2015 and we decided that we really needed to get out this spring and try to find his sheds and didn't expect to just because they, they change up patterns quite a bit and I just happened to be walking kind of a a sliver of Creek bottom. And there was actually a deer trail that goes along the Creek, just kind of snakes along the the drainage. And I walked up to some antlers and I'm like, it it was so weird to me because they, it's like someone just placed them there and it didn't, you know how a deer, when he drops his sheds, you know, one might be here and one might be off somewhere else. Even if you find a pair, you know, they're, they look like, you know, he'd struggled to get the the last side off or whatever it might be. It was like he was, had hands, took them off his head and laid them side by side <laughs> in the deer trail. I mean, it was the, the most random thing I've ever seen in my life. And like, I honestly stopped and I looked around and I'm like, someone playing a trick on me. Like this, I mean, that's what I felt. I'm like, this, this doesn't even seem real, but anyway, I picked him up and, and of course it's touchdown. And so I know that, his home core is right there where I have you know permission, and I'm just hoping like heck that he's he's still using the area um I'm not sure i don't i am not sure what the farmer's gonna plant um where I hunted big Louie this year I'm hoping it's something that's attractive to touchdown, but I never have seen touchdown on the hoof ever, and so he's on my trail cameras like crazy, he's just a super nocturnal buck, and so I just have high hopes that I can maybe, you know, put some time in and, and try to scout at a distance early and maybe get an opportunity at him when he's hopefully a little more vulnerable, uh, in September, maybe. So.
0: Perfect. Well, man, I, I tell you what, let me be the first to, uh, wish you or heck it might even be your wife who, uh, yeah. gets a crack at uh touchdown this upcoming season and, uh, good luck for that and then congratulations on your stud buck this year and uh here pretty soon you're going to be taking another one into the timber with you sounds like or yeah man not the timber over out there but out hunting with you
2: that's for sure yeah i have a four and a half year old and then i have another one that's almost two another little boy so we've got a hunting family for sure my wife is just a stone cold killer man she she's amazing shot with a bow she's shot more turkey than I have with a bow. Um, you know, of course I'm, I'm with her along helping her and stuff. You know, I know I always let her shoot first, but she has like ice running through her veins. She just is amazing at keeping calm when the crunch time comes on deer and turkey. And it's just super exciting to see that. And I'm hoping my boys take to the hunting. I took a hunter, my oldest last, last uh, spring for his first turkey hunt ever. And, uh, he, he watched a a Tom come strutting in and I shot him with my bow and he, I have it all on video. My wife videoed, you know, me shooting the Tom and him, you know, reacting to everything. And it's, it's priceless. So I'm super excited about the boys
0: coming up for sure. Nice. Perfect. 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 Well, uh, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks, Dan. Big thanks to Travis for coming on the show and telling his story. Big thanks to you, the listener for uh, tuning in today and, in every podcast that you guys listen to. Uh, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate the time and the energy and and uh, the response that I'm getting. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, like I always say, if you guys want more information from the Nine Finger Chronicles, make sure you guys visit NineFingerChronicles.com. I've been slacking on the blog portion of it recently because the podcast has been taking up so much time, but uh, I do have a lot of great content there for, for you guys to read through. All Also, make sure you guys check me out on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and all the other social media avenues. What else? What else? What else? Oh, yeah. Big thanks to Exodus Trail Camera for supporting this podcast. And if you guys do decide to purchase an Exodus Trail Camera at checkout online, enter 9Fingers, the number 9 followed by fingers, no spaces, and you guys will be able to take advantage of $20 off just by entering in the code nine fingers. So with that said, thank you guys very much for tuning in. Hopefully your week doesn't suck. And uh, as for me, I will be turkey hunting on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of this week. So I am jacked for that. I won't be wearing a safety harness, but if I was to be hunting from a tree, I would be wearing my damn safety harness. You guys should wear your damn safety harness, too, when you're hunting from a tree stand. Okay, that was, anyway, hey, have a good one.